Perhaps the Count will find a way to make his monster work today. For if he solves this monster mania, he can return to Transylvania. So welcome where the sun won't shine to the castle of Count Frightenstein. Well, if you're Canadian and grew up in the 1980s or 1990s, that theme may just bring back fantastic memories of fun Saturday mornings and weekday after schools. This week, I'm thrilled to be talking to co-producer of the seminal children's cult classic comedy horror sketch program, The Hilarious House of Frightenstein, in which he also co-starred and worked alongside Vincent Price and the multi-talented Billy Van. In 1971, Mitch and his brother Riff started filming the show in the small Hamilton, Ontario, CHCH Studios. Back then, nobody knew that the 130 episodes would become an international phenomenon, which would inspire children and adults alike in Canada, the U.S., and around the world. So without further ado, let's talk to Mitch Markowitz. I do Comic-Cons and festivals and things all the time, and I appear at them. And whenever somebody comes up and asks me for an autograph or a poster or whatever, I always ask them, where did you watch the show? As a matter of fact, I asked you. And um, I get answers like uh, Madrid, Spain, and, and Norway. And The show not only had legs and, and ended up being the longest-running kids' TV show in Canadian history, but geographically, I'm still shocked every time I hear some place that it played that I wasn't even aware of. You guys uh, brought uh, Vincent Price in to do some of the uh, the intros and uh, the in-between segments as well. Yeah, they were called interlocutors, where he would introduce each individual segment. And I'll tell you, Sean, there's a funny story about Vincent Price. When we originally came up with the concept for um, Frankenstein, my brother had produced some other shows for CHCH-TV prior to this. And we knew that there was a sort of a void in their programming. They didn't have a, a real heavy-duty kids' TV show. So we went in and had a meeting with the general manager of the station and, and proposed us producing this hour-long pseudo-horror kids' TV show. And he listened to us, and he sort of thought about it a bit, and he said, let me, you know, he sort of wanted some time to think about it. And we realized right then and there, we had definitely not made the sale at that meeting. So we came back to our place in Toronto and thought about it and talked about it a bit, made another, arranged another meeting with Sid, and went back out and, and talked to him, and just made him an offer he couldn't refuse, if, if you remember the scene from The Godfather. We said, basically, listen, if we could get a real big-time, heavy-duty movie star that had specialized in horror to be the host of the show, what would you think? Would we have a deal in that case? And he just thought about it for about 30 seconds and said, listen, who, like, who are you talking about? Like, what kind of a movie star? 
And I guess the first words out of my brother's mouth were, um, uh, thought about it for half a minute and said, well, how about Vincent Price? And Sid said, listen, if you could get Vincent Price to come to Hamilton, Ontario, to host our little TV show, I'd sign right here, right now, for 130 hour-long episodes. And, of course, the rest is history. Then all we had to do was figure out how we were going to get Vincent Price. I mean, they didn't have email addresses or anything back then. How did you get your no. hands on Vincent Price? Well, well, we did a little research and we found um, somebody who knew him and, and gave, him a, gave us a contact number, phone number, and we got in touch with him. And basically, it was quite easy. You know, a lot of people think everything in the world is difficult and it can look difficult. But as soon as you sort of put your mind to it and try, the answer is usually right out there. We called him. And, and basically said that we're shooting this kid's TV show in Hamilton, Ontario. So first of all, it won't interfere with your movie career. Nobody's ever heard of Hamilton. Nobody's going to end up seeing this show. So it's not like it's going to you know, besmirch your reputation. And um, we'll get you in and out of town in two days. That's what we told them. That isn't what ended up happening. But that's what we told them. And um, we offered to pay him, of course. I think we paid $10,000 for him. But in those days, in 1970, which was when we first started putting this together, $10,000, not bad for two days pay. And basically he said, you know, he'd never done a kid's show before. He'd never done anything basically in Canada, no television, that's for sure, in Canada. The thought of working with kids or for kids appealed to him. We, we said, we'll get you in and out of town in two days. So it even didn't even interfere with whatever film he was shooting at the time. So that was, it, it wasn't nearly as hard as it, as everybody thought it was going to be. Even the beginning of the program with the opening theme, and then you have uh, Vincent, you know, declaiming the opening poem really yep. drew, drew the person in and there. And then I, the, I remember the first time I saw it, I was thinking, what is this? Wow. <laughs> Not an unusual reaction. <laughs> I mean, you had some of the segments which were just absolutely zany and hilarious, like the Wolfman and, and the Igor character. The sort of psychedelic effect that we had behind them when they were dancing was a complete accident. We were on the, on the set shooting and um, a camera sort of not slipped but those are big cameras in those days it didn't slip but it just got aimed in the wrong direction for a minute and it aimed at a monitor on the set and if you know anything about audio and i'm sure you do you know this thing called feedback so if you stand in front of a speaker with a microphone you get that screeching horrible feedback noise well it's not dissimilar in television if you aim the camera into the monitor they feed back on each other and it gives you this weird sort of psychedelic look. And I think we all realized right then that we had discovered something wonderful that would work perfectly for the Wolfman segment. So we honed it and, and you know, improved it a little bit. And uh, again, that's, as you mentioned, we had Igor and Billy Van, who was the star of the show. I mean, he played a million characters on the show. They danced in front of this psychedelic background and kids loved it. I mean, he was probably the, the most popular character on the show. They also had the librarian segments, which actually, mm -hmm. I mean, the beginning of the librarian, I mean, if you're a kid, it might be a little spooky until you start seeing the joke. What, what would happen is he would come out and sit on this this old uh, antique chair and he would start reading these. A lot of it were just like children's nursery, nursery rhymes, things like that. Yeah, that's right. And he would do it with this scary affect, but it would be hilarious because the, the story wouldn't be frightening at all. And at the end, he'd sort of give up or something. You know, Sean, it's so funny that you should bring the librarian up because, first of all, it was Billy's least favorite character because the makeup took a good two hours to apply. And when I do these Comic-Cons and festivals and, and things around the country, 
most of the people that come up to me tell me, you know, where they where they watched the show and how old they were. Everybody tells me that they loved Griselda the Witch, they loved the Wolfman, etc., etc., etc. But when the librarian came on, they had to go and hide behind the sofa. They could listen, but they couldn't watch. Um, so another uh, character that I found fascinating was the physics teacher. The professor. The professor. This was like genuine science education. He was a real professor. And I don't think you're, you're probably not old enough to, to know where we saw him originally. But my brother and I both grew up watching the Johnny Carson show religiously, like every night. And Professor Julius Sumner Miller was a regular guest on his show, and we saw him. And when we started to do the sort of brainstorming for Frankenstein, and we thought, you know what, this guy is wonderful. He'll add a, a great educational component to the show, and he looks, sounds, and acts like he really lives in a scary castle. So he was a, he was a perfect find for us. This wasn't, you know, simple... Uh baking soda with vinegar kind of science he was oh no like some of it almost looked like college level it was kind of interesting well i'll give you a little insight into him he went to school with albert einstein he was a very interesting intelligent man he was a bit of a trip he really was and he had a very strong new england accent so when he wanted one of us he would instead of using our first name he would just call markowitz can i see you over here for a moment it was a real trip <laughs> And that's the way he looked, by the way. There's no makeup. We didn't do his hair or anything. The way you saw him was the way he looked. He's like a version of Bill Nye, but uh, yes. set back in time. That's very true. I actually heard that uh, Billy Van, uh, they actually made him up in some of the uh, costumes. It was so strenuous. like so. There was so much makeup that he would just tape and tape and tape into the night. And apparently things got goofier and goofier as he as he went on. Well, you've certainly done your homework, Sean. Yes, that's true. Everybody thought we were going to do was work from 9 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon. But it never worked out that way. We started with makeup at 6. We started shooting around 9, 8, 30, 9 o'clock. And quite often we didn't finish till midnight. Now, we were ready to stop. My brother and I were ready to stop around 8-ish. And we still would have gotten in a good, you know... 10 or 11 hours at that point. But Billy just kept pushing us, and he had a voracious appetite for work. He just could keep on going and going. And in those days, CH's crew were not union. So albeit they thought they were going to be finished at 5, like I say, we just kept on rocking, and they were good guys, and they just they just hung in. They just kept on shooting until 11, sometimes as late as midnight. I mean, there must have been a fair amount of heat and stuff underneath all those lights. Oh, it was terrible. I, I, I remember when I did the um, super hippie bit, I was sweating to death because I had this huge blonde afro on. And I don't know if you ever worn a wig or not, but it, it's they're synthetic materials and they, they don't exactly absorb sweat. And you're right, there's an enormous amount of lighting going on on the set. So between that and the skin tight Superman costume and this five pound blonde afro, I had water pouring out of me. And, and again, the studio wasn't really air conditioned like a, a contemporary studio with. So tell me a little bit about your projects coming up. We are at the very early stages of working on a documentary about the hilarious house of Frankenstein. As you know, but your, your listeners may not, our show inspired lots of people over the years. And by lots of people, I'm talking about people like Mike Myers and, and um, Jim Carrey and the SCTV players and John Candy and uh, Alice Cooper. And the list just goes on and on and on. So the plan is we're going to interview all of those people, whether it's be here in Hollywood or in New York. And um, we're going to do a documentary that I don't even know how long it's going to be yet, but somewhere between an hour to two hours, maybe 
closer to an hour and a half. And um, I, I think we have a good chance of, the, of getting that entered into film festivals right across the world because the show played in lots of different countries. And it's it's really firmly embedded embedded in the minds of kids who grew up back in the 70s and 80s and who then turned their kids on to it in the um, 1990s or 2000s. And now their grandchildren are being turned on to it because, as I mentioned, the show's available on YouTube. It's available on DVD. And it was at, at one point it was on the U.S. Netflix. So I'm now dealing, when I do these live shows, with three generations of, of Frankenstein fans. By the way, I mentioned Mike Myers to you. There's a, a quick funny story about Mike. When he was um, a kid, he grew up here in Toronto, a suburb of Toronto called Scarborough. And at that time, our show was running from 3.30 to 4.30 every afternoon, well, five days a week. So he, when he was given the key to the city by the mayor, he told the mayor and the assembled audience, and this was very nice of him because he's a huge movie star, as you know, and he didn't really have to do this, but he told everybody that, you know, you have to give credit where credit's due. When I was a kid, I'd come home every day after school. My mom would give me a plate of, a plate of cookies and a glass of milk, and I'd sit there and watch Frankenstein from 3.30 to 4.30. And then when he got older and grew up and became rich and famous and did his Austin Powers movies. Anybody who's ever seen those movies, if you remember correctly, there was a mini-me and a maxi-me. He got that from Frankenstein because we had a, a mini-count who was 31 inches tall, and we had a maxi-count who was Billy Van, who was the full-size count. So that's what inspired Mike to his, uh, his characters in his film. Hey, this is Jacob Haller. In my podcast, Tell Me About Your Song, I call up all kinds of songwriters, jazz, rock, folk, electronica, whatever, and all levels of experience from just starting out to established national acts, and I ask them to talk about a song they wrote for about 20 minutes. So if you're interested in hearing creative folks talk about what they do, then check it out at tellmeaboutyoursong.com. Thanks. You may not have noticed it or known it when you were doing the show, even though what you were doing was ambitious. And I, I honestly think that it's really commendable the way that you just followed your dreams and made it work. Is there anything that uh, you learned because of the show or is there anything that the show's legacy taught you over the last, uh, I guess, 45 years that you come out oh, with? Oh, wow. What a great question. And have I got a great answer for you. When, when you talk about learned, we, the, um, when, when Vincent Price originally came here to Toronto, we asked him if there was anything he'd like to do before we go into Hamilton. He said, well, there is one thing. We have a, a, a store here that's famous throughout the world. It's called Honest Ed's. And the store was owned by a chap named Ed Mervish. And his son, David Mervish, way back then, owned a gallery, an art gallery. And um, Vincent Price, who was an art connoisseur, said, the only thing I really want to do is I'd love to visit at the, the Mervish Gallery. And of course, we knew at the time that he was going to be busy until midnight every night. He didn't know that at that point. So we got in touch with the owner, with David Mervish. We said, we've got Vincent Price in town. And is there anything you can do to accommodate him after hours? Because he's not going to be able to get back into Toronto until like one in the morning. And David Mervish said, are you kidding? Vincent Price? I'll meet him whenever you want. So we ended up meeting at 2.30 in the morning. And he gave him a tour of the gallery. And so that was the fun Vincent had in the city. Then the next day, we went into... Hamilton and uh, we started shooting about 10 minutes into the shooting I now the way that worked if you remember correctly Vincent stood on what what appeared to be a balcony on the set a balcony of the castle and I was lying out of the camera shot on the ground right beneath him and I had a huge pile of props and every new bit we did I was supposed to hand him up the prop that I thought was most appropriate for him to hold during that bit my brother at the time was in the booth directing the show 
and CHCH didn't have a real booth at that point. They had a bus that was parked in the parking lot, and the, the booth, the control booth, was in the bus. So we started shooting. We shot about 10 or 15 minutes. My brother got on the PA system and said, Vincent, Mitch, we have to have a meeting. He came running in from the bus and uh, onto the set. The three of us got into a little huddle, and he looked Vincent in the eye and said, Vincent, you're not scary. We hired you to be scary. You've already read 15 minutes <laughs> worth of copy, and you're not scary. So Vincent looked him right back in the eye and said, listen, if you want scary, you have to write scary. The stuff that you wrote is cute. It all rhymed. It was sweet. But it's, he was right. It wasn't scary. So we learned a very valuable lesson. We got in touch with the two writers we had writing all the Vincent Price bits. We got them to come back out to the house. We were living in a, a large house, almost a mansion in Etobicoke, another suburb of Toronto at the time. That's where we did all the pre-production work as well, all the writing. So we got them back out and we told them that, listen, Vincent Price said the stuff's not scary. He can't make stuff that isn't scary, scary. So you're going to go into that room over there and you're going to rewrite all 130 episodes, all the Vincent Price material. And this time you're going to write it scary. And in the interim, until that's finished, no bathroom breaks and no food. So they went into the room, we locked it, and about 24 hours later, there was a, a big knock on the door, and we went and opened the door, and they said, we're done. And uh, again, the rest is history. We let them eat, we let them go to the bathroom, we took the material back out onto the set. They had written stuff that was scary. Vincent read it as only Vincent Price could. And that comes back to your question, is there anything we learned? Yeah, there sure is. If you want something scary, you have to write it scary. If you want, you know, whatever you want, you have to put in front of the performer because they can't make magic. They can't just take sweet little rhymes and make them into something scary. So um, I think we both learned a life lesson there. And obviously you can you can take the lesson elsewhere. I mean, it doesn't have to be just the, the scary part. Mitch, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Good talking to you again. Have a happy Canada weekend, what's left of it. And the same to your viewers. Actually, I forgot. By the time this show airs, Canada Day was behind us. And we all had a great Canada Day. <laughs> do not, do not be scared, my dear ones. Is it over yet? It certainly isn't. This interview was tons of fun to do, and Mitch had so many great stories to share. Some of these came during our more casual discussion after the formal interview, and others simply didn't fit into the flow of the conversation because their introduction or context were either too off-topic or had to be cut for time. So in order to bring as much of these as I can to you, I'm going to include a couple now with short introductions. Earlier, we discussed the librarian, whose makeup was extraordinary and exceptional for not only a Canadian children's production, but for any television spot or movie in the 1970s. In fact, the advanced prosthetics Billy Van used were truly at par with even modern-day techniques. In this segment, Mitch recounts his harrowing trip to NBC's 40 Rock in Manhattan to acquire the masks which would give the hilarious House of Frightenstein a costume edge that still holds up to this day. So we originally tried makeup, like real traditional makeup. And we did, we, we shot a few shows, recorded a few shows. 
and we realized that it just wasn't cutting it. Like with, with a mask on, as an example, which is what we tried for the librarian, an old man's mask. You, you can't move your face. I mean, you, you can you can move your face, but the mask doesn't necessarily move with your face. You know, it's like if you've ever worn a Halloween mask. First of all, it's very uncomfortable. Second of all, it's boiling under all that all those lights. And third of all, it doesn't move like your face does, especially you know a five dollar mask. Not if you don't get into very expensive stuff. So what we decided we had to do was stop taping, and we had to seek out and find the best company that would make prosthetic pieces for us, which if you viewers don't know what that means, it means, for example, you, you get a prosthetic nose and a prosthetic chin, a prosthetic cheek, and you those are glued on you. So it's your face and your face moves and articulates and the pieces all move with your face because they're each glued to your face. And there was nobody here that was capable of doing that. So we found that the best place to go was to NBC in New York City in Rockefeller Center. So my brother and I pulled straws to see who was going to escort Billy to go there and have the, the mold made for his face. And of course, I was the younger brother, so I lost the straw pole. And I don't really like to fly. I mean, I've flown extensively, but it's not my favorite way to travel. But I figured I got to do what I got to do. So Billy and I got into a, a limo and went out to the airport here in Toronto, got on the airplane, and uh, I sort of closed my eyes and grinned and bare the hour, hour and 20 minute flight to New York. And I just assumed that when we got to New York, we'd land there, go out into the reception area, and there would be somebody standing there with a sign that says Markowitz or Frankenstein or something there to pick us up, a limousine or something, a cab. Anyway, much to my dismay, that isn't what happened. What I didn't realize was my brother had made arrangements for us to go right from the departure section of the airport over to the helicopter section. And the only thing scarier than flying in an airplane, as you may or may not know, is flying in a helicopter. But it gets worse. We got into the helicopter because once again, I had no choice. Really. You got to do what you got to do. So I sort of manned up. We got into Billy and I got into the helicopter. It took off, and during the flight from LaGuardia, I think it was, to Times Square, I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about it, and I had been to New York a couple times prior to that, and I'm, I'm thinking, how are they going to land this helicopter in the middle of Times Square, which, of course, is physically impossible, because New York wasn't as big and as busy as it is now then, but it was still very busy, very busy, I should say. Anyway, make a long story short, when it came time to approach Rockefeller Center, which is, I think, a 40-story building, I realized how they were going to do it. They landed that thing on the roof of, of NBC building and of 40 Rock. And I have to tell you, Sean, I got out of that helicopter and I had to go and change my pants. I mean, I was so <laughs> freaked out having to land that helicopter on top of this 40-story building. Anyway, we went in and they made the mold for Billy's face, which took a couple of hours. They made sure it came out perfectly, and then they said goodbye to us, and they let us go. And then from there, they pour rubber into that, and they, they take the mold of your face, and they, they then build the prosthetic pieces, whether it be nose or cheeks or chins, because each character had different pieces. And they make them so they will fit on your cheeks and your chin and your nose. They ship them to us a couple of weeks later. And again, the rest is history. I mean, they, they were terrific prosthetic pieces. They, they, were, they were the best people in the country to make them. And albeit it was very expensive, it was worth it because that was unquestionably the best makeup, if you will, that any television show that ever came out of Canada ever had. I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. That librarian looked like a 90-year-old man. And Griselda looked like a witch and uh, et cetera, et cetera. It turns out that much like shows like Mystery Science Theater 3000, 
the hilarious House of Frightenstein acquired a cult following in the college student crowd, at least in California. Here's Mitch's explanation of how this happened. My son, when he got to be college age, which was about five years ago, I was hoping that he was he would pick a college somewhere within you know an hour and a half or two hour drive of Toronto because again I don't like flying, but sure enough he came downstairs one day he had a computer in his bedroom at that point that was a long time ago, but he came downstairs one day and said you know I think I'll apply to the University of British Columbia and I think oh no that's three thousand miles away anyway I I couldn't say no. And he was accepted, and he actually got a 50% um, uh, scholarship, so he certainly couldn't say no. So my wife and I escorted Julian out to Vancouver and got him settled in the dormitory and settled in the school and registered and everything. We stayed, I think, four days, and then we came home. And he's a very conservative kid. He's not a braggart. He's not... Um, it's like his little secret that his dad produced the kids' TV show that ended up being famous. So he called us the day after we left Vancouver and said, you know what, the, my room in the in the dorms on the fourth floor. And after you left, I went down to the third floor, which is where the common room was. And there were no doors into the common room, just a big archway. So we went and he stood in the archway, and the kids were all sitting around watching a big screen TV. And sure enough, they were watching Frankenstein. And this was 3,000 miles from Toronto, right? And he didn't say anything, wasn't going to say anything, until about half a minute later when I went flying by in, in this super hippie character. <laughs> and just inadvertently, he blurted out saying, oh my God, that's my dad. <laughs> and from that day on, for the next three years, he was treated with a whole new reverence on campus. Now, to continue this, this is a college story. When Frankenstein was sold in the U.S., Westinghouse was the syndicator at the time. And they sold the show to KTLA, which is the largest television station in California. Right. And they basically cover all of California. So when the suits at KTLA got the, the first episode, they all got together and watched it, you know, scratching their heads. And they couldn't figure out, what the heck are they going to do with this show? Because clearly, it wasn't what it was supposed to be. We sold it as a, ostensibly it was a kid's show. But truthfully, the horror, the, the, the humor was way above the level of most five or six-year-old kids. That's what I noticed so, too. Yeah. So in, in, their, in their final judgment, what they decided to do was they ran our show from 11.30 to 12.30 at night opposite Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And California has a huge number of colleges and universities all around the state. And there's, there was, right now, there's 2.1 million college students in California. So back then, there weren't that many. But it was still a huge college uh, uh, crowd out there. And what the college kids would do, if you remember Johnny Carson at all, he was a very conservative kind of guy. He was a Midwest guy. And he shivered when Tiny Tim came on his show. That's how conservative he was. So what would happen is the college kids would all start to get high at 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. By 11.30, they were all stoned out of their minds, and they would watch Frankenstein for an hour instead of Johnny Carson. So more often than not, the Flyers House of Frankenstein got higher ratings than Johnny Carson's Tonight Show in California. Well, that's all we have for this episode. Remember, you can listen to previous episodes over at ShareSlicePodcast.com. Going to be in Hamilton, Ontario this weekend? 
If so, you can catch Mitch tonight, Friday, July 8th, at Haunted Evening at Hamilton Place, which is put on by Spooky Steph from Haunted Hamilton. I've been told that Hamilton Place is infested by a female ghost clad in red who cries tears of blood. I'm too much of a skeptic myself to believe this, but it all sounds really fun. Check it out at www.hauntedhamilton.com. Then, on Saturday and Sunday, you can find Mitch at Drew Morgue's Dark Carnival at the Hamilton Convention Center. He'll be joined there by Guillermo del Toro of Hellboy 1 and Hellboy 2, Bill Mosley from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and ghoulish Gary Poland will also be there. Check it out at darkcarnivalexpo.com. You can also follow Mitch on Twitter at imtvsuperhippie with a Y. There'll be a link posted with the show notes. If you like this show, please remember to give it a five-star review on iTunes. There's a link for you to get to the iTunes profile over at sharesliceodcast.com. Intro and outro music for this podcast is by Chromatics Music, and it's used with permission. Other musical segments are from the hilarious House of Frightenstein. You can find full episodes on YouTube to watch. Please go check these out. They're tons of fun. Well, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you come back next week. Castle lights are growing dim. There's no one left but me and him. When next we meet in Frankenstone, don't come alone.